Well, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving this last week. One of the things I was thinking the week before Thanksgiving was how it seems that Christmas comes earlier and earlier each year. You used to have to wait till after Thanksgiving to start preparing for Christmas. Black Friday was the big day to begin buying gifts and putting up decorations, but now you see decorations on sale in the store right alongside the Halloween decorations that are for sale. Websites are promoting pre-Black Friday sales weeks in advance of Black Friday. Some weirdos start playing Christmas music in October. Or people like my next door neighbors who have the gall to put up a Christmas tree in sight of the whole block to see before Thanksgiving. Lord, have mercy upon them. But if you think about it, the first Christmas came really early too. Almost 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there were already a number of people anticipating His arrival. The prophets. They began announcing the coming of the Messiah centuries before He arrived. And then when He arrived, as we read in the first chapter of the New Testament, we are told that His arrival was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. One pastor I read this week said that there are 365 predictions of the coming of the Messiah. One for every day of the year if you want to start your Advent really early. We are told that He would be Emmanuel, the Son of Righteousness, the branch of Jesse, the seed of Abraham, the star of Jacob, the scepter of Israel, the light to the Gentiles, and so much more. So over the next four Sundays, we are going to prepare for Christmas by looking at some of these prophetic predictions. The series title is, Do You See What I See? Advent with the Prophets. Many of the prophets lived in very dark days, but they saw that the lights were going to one day come on. Many of them lived in days when wickedness reigned, but they saw a day when a righteous ruler would reign. Many of them lived and mourned in lonely exile, but they saw a day when a Savior would deliver them and bring them home. They are inviting us even now to see what they saw. Now we live on the other side of the first advent of Christ. And so many of the prophecies that were made 
of Christ have already been fulfilled at His first coming. And for that, we celebrate with joy during Advent. But there are many predictions that have not yet been fulfilled or have only been fulfilled partially. Just a look in our own lives, not to mention a look into the news and what is going on in our world, tells us that we, like the prophets before us, live in dark days. But the Scriptures are clear that when Christ returns, all of the words spoken by the prophets will not return void. They will all be accomplished and fulfilled. And so we wait with hope. Advent is a time to celebrate and a time to wait. If you would, please open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah is the first prophet that we are going to spend Advent with. Jeremiah lived in dark days, really dark days. And if you read his, his work, which is the longest book in the Bible, by the way, you see that much of his preaching predicted even darker days ahead. But he, like other prophets, saw beyond the darkness to the light that would come. Chapter 1, Jeremiah is commissioned for ministry. And in verse 10, that's what I want you to see, we're given a summary of what his ministry would entail. A summary that will help us to understand our primary passage this morning in Jeremiah 23. Look at verse 10. The Lord says to Jeremiah, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Notice what the metaphors are doing. Two-thirds of them, the first four things that Jeremiah is commissioned to do are to announce God's judgment. Jeremiah's words, which were God's words, would pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow. And that's going to be the bulk of what his ministry is speaking of. But another third of his commission announces God's salvation. In the place of breaking down, His words would also build up. In the place of plucking up, His words would also plant. And this is exactly what we see in our passage in Jeremiah 23, verses 1-8. to There is plucking up and planting. Breaking down and building. Darkness and light. Listen for both of these as we read our passage for this morning, which is in chapter 23, verses 1 to 8. And if you were able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Now, 
Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Like I said, this passage plucks up and breaks down, but it also builds and plants. More specifically, in verses 1 to 2, we see God speaking of removing shepherds. And in verses 3 to 8, of raising up shepherds. This is my sermon in a sentence. God will remove unrighteous rulers and raise up a righteous ruler and redeemer. Really simple. He'll remove the unrighteous rulers and He will raise up a righteous ruler who is also a Savior or a Redeemer. I'm going to spend the rest of my time unpacking this sentence. I'm not going to put any other slides up on the board. My first point will be the first part of the sentence. My second point, the second part of the sentence. Verses 1-2 to two speak of God removing unrighteous rulers. But these verses come at the end of a very long section about Judah's kings that begins in chapter 21. If we're going to understand the weight of the judgment announced in these verses, as well as the amazing grace in the verses that follow, we need to get at least some level of understanding of what was going on in chapters 21 and 22. So if you would, please turn back in your Bible to Jeremiah 21. In verse 2, the stage is set. We see Judah in deep trouble. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, are standing at the gate of Jerusalem making war against Judah. And so the king at that time, Zedekiah, sends a delegation to Jeremiah to ask him 
to inquire of the Lord. What Zedekiah wants to know is if the Lord will deliver him in the same way that he delivered Hezekiah when the Assyrians were at the gate of Jerusalem. God's response through Jeremiah is no way, Jose. Babylon, he goes on to say, is actually the least of your concerns, Zedekiah. You're going to have to contend with me. Look at verse 5. He says, I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Sure, Babylon will be the Lord's instrument, but it is actually the Lord who is fighting against them. Jerusalem will fall. Zedekiah and all who survive, they will be hauled off into exile in Babylon. But here's the real kicker for Zedekiah. The reason Jerusalem is going to be scattered into Babylon is because of kings like him. Sure, the nation had their own sins, but one of the primary reasons they went into exile was because of kings like Zedekiah. Chapter 22 is a scathing rebuke of the kings of Judah. In the first two verses of chapter 23 summarize that by saying there will be consequences for the kings of Judah. Let's look at them again. I want you to notice something in particular in these verses. The first phrase, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Then he says, You have scattered my flock and driven them far away, and you, listen to this, have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. There is an important play on words here. The shepherds are indicted for not caring for, attending to God's flock, and so they will be judged by God. He will attend to them. Why does God say that the shepherds who are the kings of Judah, have not attended to his flock. And how will God specifically attend to them? Those are the two questions I want to answer. But to do so, we're going to have to dive into a little bit of the history of Judah's final years in chapter 22 and is found in Second Kings 23 in 24. So bear with me. The kings of Judah were like shepherds of God's flock. David was called a shepherd. Other kings after him as well. The people, this is the point that we need to begin with. The people of Israel did not belong to these kings. They belong to God. So shepherding at its heart 
is a stewardship of something that doesn't belong to you. And therefore, because the sheep didn't belong to those shepherds, but to God, they were accountable to God. If you look back in chapter 22, you see very clearly what the kings were called to do, what they would be held accountable for. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. This is what it meant for the shepherds of Israel to care for God's flock in the way that He wanted them to do. He is simply restating what He said earlier in Deuteronomy 17 and in other places, what the job description was for these kings. They were under-shepherds of God's flock, so therefore they needed to shepherd God's flock in God's way, in a way that God Himself would. And if they did so, they would have a seat on David's throne. Look at verse 4. For indeed, if you will obey this word that we just read about, doing righteousness and justice, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who will sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. That would be the reward. But... If they didn't rule in righteousness and with justice, there would be consequences. Look at verse 5. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. So the expectations were clear. The rewards for obedience were clear. The consequences for disobedience were clear. So how did David's sons fare in meeting these expectations of God during Jeremiah's day? Well, there are essentially four or five kings who are ruling during Jeremiah's ministry. The first was Josiah. And he did everything that God called him to do. Look at verses 15 to 16. Here the Lord is speaking to Jehoiakim, one of Josiah's sons, and he's contrasting him to his father, Josiah. He says, Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. Josiah did righteousness and justice, which illustrated that he actually knew God. He attended to God's flock because he knew God. But his sons and his grandson were unrighteous. They did not know God and they did not attend to God's flock. And that's the main thing that chapter 22 is trying to communicate. Josiah had three sons and one grandson who sat on David's throne. And all of them, according to 2 Kings 23 and 24, did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
I underline that in my Bible as I'm reading through Kings. Which ones did evil and which ones did right? You can just see it on the page. And these four guys all did evil in the sight of the Lord. First, there was Jehoahaz, or Shalom, as he's called in verses 11 to 12. That's a little confusing because some of these kings go by different names in different times. But Jehoahaz, as he's called in 2 Kings, or Shalom, as he's called in verses 11 to 12, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was only king for three months, and then he was taken into exile in Egypt by Pharaoh Necho. Second, there was Jehoiakim. Jeremiah spends the bulk of his time on him, beginning in verse 13. You can put your eyes there to follow along with me. We see that Jehoiakim decided to build himself a massive palace. This is not necessarily wrong in and of itself, but the way he went about this building project revealed that he was a ruler who ruled with unrighteousness and injustice, as we see in verse 13. One of the first ways that he did this was he didn't pay the people that were working for him. He cheated them of the wages that were due them. He also built this palace in such a way that it was like conspicuous consumption. We see that in verse 14. In verse 17, we read that his eyes and his heart were only for dishonest gain. He shed innocent blood. He practiced oppression and violence. Not doing what God called His shepherds to do. Next, there was Jehoiachin, as you read his name in 2 Kings, or as verse 20 calls him, Kaniah, or as you read in other places, Jeconiah. But it's all referring to the same person. This was Josiah's grandson. He too did evil in the sight of the Lord. He only sat on the throne for three months, and he was then hauled off into Babylon. Last, there was Zedekiah. He was another son of Josiah, appointed by Nebuchadnezzar after Jehoiachin was taken into exile in Babylon. He too, Zedekiah, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he refused to listen to God's word through the prophet Jeremiah. And whenever Jeremiah said something he didn't like, he persecuted him. None of these shepherds attended to God's flock. And so God's flock was taken away into captivity in 587 B.C. But that wasn't the only consequence for these shepherds' actions. What exactly did God mean when He said, I will attend to you for your evil deeds? We've already read In chapter 22, verse 5, if you will not obey these words, this house shall become a desolation. That's speaking of the house of David. These are big words. God is saying that He will remove these evil shepherds and that David's throne will be left vacant. And that's what happened. 
Let me just run through these four guys again of what happened to them. I already told you what happened to Jehoahaz. He went into captivity into Egypt. Jehoiakim died in Jerusalem. And we see in verse 19 that he was given the burial of an ass outside the gates of Jerusalem. Later, in chapter 36, verse 30, we read this about Jehoiakim. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to set on the throne of David. And his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. Jehoiachin went into back, uh, exile in Babylon, never to return. Chapter 22, verse 28 says, Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? Then verse 30 says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless. A man shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah. Jehoiachin had children. He had sons. But none of them would sit on the throne of David for their living in Babylon in captivity. Zedekiah's demise might be the worst of the bunch. We read about it in chapter 39. Although Nebuchadnezzar had set him up as this puppet king in Jerusalem, eventually Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, which is something you really don't want to do. So Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, and we read in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 39 that the last thing he did to Zedekiah before he gouged out his eyes was have all of his sons slaughtered right before his eyes. So that would be the last thing that he ever saw before he too was taken into captivity in Babylon. No heir left alive to sit on the throne of David. The shepherds who didn't attend to God's flock were attended to by God. And this is a lesson for anyone who serves in leadership over God's people. This would have been somewhat good news to the people that were under their charge. God is dealing justly with those who have acted unjustly. And yet, what are they left with? They're left with no king on the throne of David. And they're left with no home in exile in Babylon. Had God's promises for His people, had they failed? God had promised very clearly. 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. God had made it very clear that David's dynasty, David's throne would endure forever. 
that it would be held firm. God said to David, Your throne shall be established forever. But now his throne was empty. Had God's promises failed? No, they hadn't failed. Remember where we began this morning. Out of darkness, Jeremiah announces the coming light. We have spent a lot of time on this darkness so that you can see the light that is to come. Though God had plucked up, God would plant. Though He had broken down, He would build up. And that's what we see in verses 3-8. to Though the people were scattered into Babylon, God promised that He would bring them back and gather them. Though the unrighteous shepherds were dead and buried, God promised that He would raise up a righteous shepherd for David's line. Verse 3, and at the end of the passage in verses 7 to 8, they speak of the return from Babylon, and it happened. Seventy years later, God brought back a remnant. But the main focus of this chapter is not on the return from exile. The main focus here is on what would happen after the return from exile. God promised to raise up a righteous ruler who is also a Savior. In verse 4, God says, the, the play on words is lost in our translation. God says literally, I will raise up shepherds over them who will care for them. Then in verses 5-6, to six, we are told what that, those shepherds, or specifically that shepherd, would be like. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which He will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now just a brief word on that word translated as branch. It's not quite right. Isaiah 11 comes to mind when we read this verse. Isaiah 11 verse 1. It's a regular Advent passage that is read. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. That's a similar idea to what we see here in verse 5, but the word in Hebrew is different, and the metaphor is slightly different as well. The word here would be better translated as sprout, but that doesn't quite ring as well as branch. It refers to to vegetative growth from the ground. The metaphor helps to make sense of what we saw before. The line of David seems dead and buried in the ground. However, there will sprout up growth almost on the grave, as it were. The coming ruler that is spoken of here will signal life after death. David's throne will not remain vacant. A righteous sprout will emerge from the ground. But the main emphasis is on what will characterize this ruler 
that God will raise up. He will be righteous. He will do what the Davidic kings before him failed to do. Instead of like Jehoiakim building a house through unrighteousness and injustice, we are told in verse 5 that this ruler shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Wouldn't that be nice to have a ruler that brings forth justice and who does rightly in all circumstances? Verse 5, just like Isaiah 11, which is similar, are both clearly pointing to Jesus. Jeremiah was preparing us for Christmas almost 600 years before Jesus came. He was telling people what to look for in the coming Messiah. A righteous ruler. Something that God's people had really not ever known fully. They had seen glimpses of it. But they had never known a purely righteous ruler. And what the people who were hearing Jeremiah's words knew was only unrighteous, ungodly rulers. But Jesus would be the righteous one. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There's a play on words in verse 6. Zedekiah's name meant my righteousness is Yahweh. My righteousness is the Lord. The future Davidic king's name is the Lord is our righteousness. What Jeremiah is doing is saying where Zedekiah failed to live up to the name that he bore, where he failed to reflect the God that he served as an under-shepherd, the coming ruler will perfectly embody his name. He will perfectly reflect the righteousness of God. He will then be our righteousness, which is what we need. But Jesus did more than live righteously and execute justice. Verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. The righteous branch not only lives a righteous life, he also saves people who do not live righteous lives and will as a result of their unrighteousness bear the consequences for their sin. Not only the consequence of exile in Babylon, Jesus came to save His people from their sin and the tyranny of Satan. Colossians 1, 13-14 says this, He, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And He did this on the cross. There have always been unrighteous rulers in this world. And even unrighteous rulers leading in the church. 
There have always been sheep who take advantage of the sheep. Always been shepherds, that is, who take advantage of the sheep instead of caring for them. That's why one pastor says, with shepherds like these, who needs wolves? In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus calls these false shepherds thieves. In John 10.10, He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And how does He give that abundant life that false shepherds, former shepherds, were unable to do? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus shows his righteousness, his care for the flock by dying for the flock. The righteous one dies for the unrighteous. The shepherd becomes the lamb who was slaughtered. He serves as our representative and our substitute in every way. Our perfect, spotless righteousness. In the place of our sinfulness, He is our righteousness. And where we deserve to be judged for our unrighteousness, He took that judgment upon Himself on the cross so that we could be saved and dwell securely. At the cross, Jesus accomplished a new exodus from the exile that we live in. At the cross, He showed that He is the good shepherd who does what shepherds do. Provides, guides, protects. He protects us from sin and Satan. He provides eternal life. He guides us into our promised eternal inheritance. So this Advent, We celebrate. We celebrate the fact that God raised up a righteous branch for David in Jesus. Our righteousness. Our Savior. Let us rejoice that this Word came to pass. And yet we continue to wait for Him to come again. And when He comes again, and only when He comes again, Will all of the unrighteousness in our world be attended to? Will all of the sin and death and disease be removed so that we can dwell securely in His perfect peace? Do you see what the prophets saw? Do you know what to look forward to? We need to see what they saw. So that as we look forward and wait, we can wait with hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You, as we said earlier, that Your Word does not return void. You accomplished what You promised through the prophet Jeremiah in sending Your Son, Jesus, the righteous branch. You will accomplish what You have promised in bringing perfect justice and righteousness to this world when Christ returns. As we wait, I pray we would wait with hope 
looking to Jesus who alone can save us from our own sin and deliver us from the sins of this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.